Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. The prevailing church on this rock, I will build my church. And uh, so he spoke about the foundation of the prevailing church being the confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. This week, I'm going to speak on the way of the prevailing church, which is the way of the cross. And next week, we're going to speak on the hidden glory of the church, which Jesus showed through the transfiguration. So I'm going to start, and we're going to read a portion that I think Sean read last week. It's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 26. Now, when Jesus came to the districts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's kind of a weird statement to make in that portion, but we realize now why he asked them not to say anything because they really didn't understand what any of that meant. Because now, Jesus says, from that time, he began to show his disciples that they must go to Jerusalem, that he, sorry, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The foundation of the prevailing church is the confession and declaration that Jesus is the Christ. The way of the prevailing church is the way of the cross. And so we see in this section, there are like three power moves or flex moves. Uh, I remember when uh, Neil was talking to me and, he, and uh, I'm like, well, what, do you, what is the flex move? He's like, it's, it's kind of when you make a power move and you, and you kind of like flex. Let me show you how strong I am. You know, which way is it to the bathroom? That way, that way is the way to the bathroom, you know. And there's three flex moves here. Some of them work out better than others. The, the first flex move is the proclamation where Simon says, this is who you are. The second flex move is the correction that Peter makes of Jesus. And the third flex move is the rebuke. So let's, let's look at those. The first one is Peter's accurate proclamation of Jesus's identity. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah. Others 
Jeremiah or one of the prophets. How many of you have been in a situation where uh, there's this awkward moment where, where you ask a couple, so who is this? Um, and then they look at each other because they are dating, not dating, and they're trying to figure out, well, who's going to answer first this question? And then you hear the person wait for the ambulance to go past. And then the person says, this is my uh, friend. Then you see the other person turn and this either look of dismay or pain comes over them. There's, there's this weird sense of like, I, I don't really know how to explain my relationship to this person. I, I remember when we met a specific person and I said to Karen, Karen's like, who is that? She's like, that used to be a friend of mine. And she's like, what does that mean? I said, exactly what that means. That used to be a friend of mine. She's like, was, is that one of your ex-girlfriends? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's one of my ex-girlfriends. She's like, you know, you could have said that, right? Well, with Peter, the other disciples are saying, well, some say you're this. Some say you're that. Others say you're this. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. There, there was no question. It's, this is my wife. This is my friend. This is my brother. There is no question about the nature of that relationship. It's a forceful confession. It's a confession of fact and not opinion. Some say, some say, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him and tells us that this answer is a revelatory answer. Uh, this is not something that he has theologically figured out. This is not something that he's academically figured out because we know he's not that smart. And so what happens is Jesus tells Simon who he is on the basis of Simon's confession. And I want to say in the context of the world that we live in, if we stand in a crowd and we make a declaration about who Jesus is, we will soon find out who we are. Because the response to that declaration is going to help us realize who we are. The second flex move, or what Peter thinks is a flex move, is his woeful correction of Jesus' purpose. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed and raised on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we can have the right facts, but be very far off on the implication on those facts. The suffering Christ, that doesn't sound right. Peter's thinking that it's an oxymoron. This, this cannot be. The Christ is supposed to come with triumph. He's supposed to come with payback, with power. This is nonsensical. It's offensive. And actually, it's, it's a little dangerous. The challenge with Peter in all of this is that, you know, he, he grabs Jesus. He's like, I know how to deal with the situation. Just come here, Jesus. Let me let me help you. Let me tone down a lot of this death and cross stuff. Let me, uh, let me make it a little bit more palatable. The thing about Peter, where I connect a whole lot with Peter, is that there's a lot of mixed motive happening in Peter. There's blindness, there's ambition, there's self-preservation, and there is love. All of this is mixed into this response that is not a good response. In my, my relationship with my wife, I have 
definitely some mixed motives when it comes to gift giving. So um, men that have been married for a while, if you give the gift of lingerie, let's just say that that is not just a gift for your wife. There is a definite benefit that you receive with a gift of lingerie. So I asked my wife, hey, you know, like I want to bless you. What, what would you like? And I'm thinking like a day out. Yeah, Nick, I would really love to spend some time with you. Why don't you book some time? We can go away together. It's like, hey, babe, what do you want? It's like, I, I want a sewing machine. <laughs> sewing machine? What are you going to sew lingerie? What it, what's, like, what, how, what are you going to do with a sewing machine? You know? And so my mixed motive gets in there. Like, do I want to bless her or do I want to bless me? Now, I'm sure we can work it out where both of us are blessed in this, you know. But the sewing machine, I really don't see a way. I really don't see a way because I'm not into quilting. It is the most bizarre thing for me that you would take a blanket, cut it up, put it back together again, and give it to someone. I, 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 I don't get it. Anyway, I'm, I'm off on a tangent. But, but the reason that this is so difficult for us with Peter is that we know that there is a love for Jesus. But we also know that there's mixed motive. And we know that Jesus is saying, it isn't just your own heart that is engaged in this. You are in danger. I can imagine Peter thinking this. You know what? I did not put up with James and John for this. I did not leave my family business. I did not leave my home. I did not um, leave my, uh, every, my every future that I had planned for myself for a nomadic existence to follow a suicidal leader. No, this is not what I signed up for. This is the time of liberation. This man, you have fed thousands of people. You have exorcised demons. You have calmed the storm. You have walked on water. You have befuddled and embarrassed the Pharisees. You have... Um, you have proven that you are the Messiah. The time is now. The destruction of Rome is now. Israel will rise. The bold rebuke comes. Because Peter might be Christ-centered, but he's not cross-centered. And so he realizes that even a clear definition of Jesus has massive implications for Peter's life, as we'll see later on. The third and mightiest flex moment in all of this is the bold rebuke. He turns to Peter. And this is not one of those um, like slowly turning. This is one of those mom turns when the mom turns around and everyone just kind of does that. This is one of those turns. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is a massively painful irony. It's like two sentences before that, Peter is called the rock. And on this rock, on this confession, even on you, Peter, what I'm going to do is build the church of God. And now he's called a stumbling block, a rock in the road that causes people to stumble. That, that not only are you not the foundational rock on which I will build this church, but your thoughts are going to cause people who want to follow me to stumble and fall. And Peter, this is not just a well-intentioned mistake. You're being used as a mouthpiece of the devil, the accuser, the tempter, the one that tempted me with the very same thing, saying, don't 
go through suffering. Stand up on this high hill. I will give you the kingdoms. Turn these stones into bread. Make life more comfortable for yourself and serve me. That same devil that tempted me for 40 days in the desert is the mouthpiece that is, is the stuff that is coming out of your mouth. Bengal says that the cross is an offense to the world, but the things contrary to the cross are an offense to Jesus. Now, could Jesus have been more sensitive? Could he have been kinder? Could he have maybe validated Peter's feelings and drawn him aside and said, look, I know this is difficult for you. Um, I, I know that you're going through some stuff right now and, and, and let's talk about it and, and, and let's engage. No, this is not the time for gentle correction. He's in imminent danger. And he's not just in danger for his own understanding of what the gospel is. The rest of the disciples are listening to this. Now, there is a voice that Karen has when she has a, an opinion or a, or a, or a thought. And uh, we're driving in the car and, and, and she'll say, babe, she'll tap me lightly on the shoulder, babe. You're going you're gonna to miss your turn off, you know. You've all heard Karen's voice. It's so soothing and open and stuff. Babe, you, babe you're going you're gonna, to, oh, or you missed your turn off. And then I'll say, well, why did you let me miss it? She's like, um, explain to me how this is my fault, you know. So, you know, it's a, it's a very gentle thing. When a car is stopped in front of me and I'm hurtling towards it, she is not using that voice. There isn't a sense of kind of come here, gentle reminder. She's, she's like, next, 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 stop. I don't know why it's three necks. It's always three necks. It's uh, nick, 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 stop. I think we, what we need to understand is not that Jesus is not kind, not that he's not gentle, but he understands the danger of this moment and that there is a rebuke necessary because this is dangerous, dangerous thinking. There is always time for a gentle reminder. And we see in the life of Jesus and Peter that after Peter betrayed Jesus, there was a gentle restoration. Now, the difference between a rebuke that can save someone's life and a gentle restoration is generally this. A rebuke is before something negative happens. And where we as family are actually being able to say to, to our physical sons and daughters and to the rest of the body of Christ, stop it, there's danger, please don't do that, be careful. But after something has happened, what we need to do is what Paul says, restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. There is no point in the yelling after something has happened. At least that's what Karen tells me. Uh, yeah, no. I, was, I always think there's a lot of things like Karen, says, Karen tells me also as well that, you know, crying makes things better. You feel better. And I'm like, well, yelling makes things better. You feel better, you know. Depending on the circumstance, a rebuke can be as loving as a gentle correction. Gentle restoration is usually after repentance has taken place. So Peter's correction reveals the ways of man. Jesus says, you don't have the ways of God in mind. You have the ways of man. And Peter's correction reveals that generally speaking, we want comfortable community without commitment. We want peace and purpose without price. And we want greatness without the grave. Jesus' rebuke tells us what the designer has for us and that we are to seek the glory of God. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man, Jesus tells him. We, 
we are to deny self and embrace life through death. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man who gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus, I want to pray for your help. I want to pray in this moment that you would help us to just push away the temptation to be defensive. I want to pray that you would help us push away the temptation to be embarrassed. And I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us in the midst of this difficult message. William Barclay says, Jesus is not anti our life, but he is anti preoccupation with our life. Jesus is not anti your life, but he's anti preoccupation with your life. So what is taking up your cross? In Mercy Commons, we talk about um, reveling in the mercies of God, proclaiming the mercies of God, demonstrating the mercies of God, and participating in acts of mercies for the common good. And so Peter got the one part right in, in the sense that he is proclaiming who Jesus is. He makes this bold proclamation. He's 100% correct. But he didn't truly understand what the demonstration of the mercies of God was. He wanted to live a certain kind of life and wanted Jesus to model that because he understood that as a disciple, whatever life the teacher lived would be the kind of life the disciple would live. We are not aimlessly carrying around this heavy weight or burden. We are following Jesus, our Savior, modeling our way of life on his character and his mission. You know, early Christians were known as people of the way for two reasons. One, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But also because there was a specific way in which they operated. There was a way in which they dealt with their finances. There was a way in which they dealt with the community. There was a way in which they engaged the rest of their world. There, there was a specific way of doing it, and this way is the way of the cross. One of the first things we understand about the way of the cross is that it's very public. And we understand that even from history, that um, someone that was executed and tortured on a cross was a very, very public thing. Carrying your cross these days is a public thing. I'm not talking about a, a nice little cross around your neck. I'm talking about the fact that if you live in the way that Jesus has called you to live, people will notice. This was an instrument of torture where people would be paraded through the city and then hung in public for everyone to see that person is a criminal. And it's the same in the, in the context of the, the way of the cross is that everyone should be able to see that we are people of the way, that we are carrying our crosses. People watch our choices. They watch our words. They watch our relationships and responses to different scenarios. It's a, it's a public setting, the idea of carrying your cross. Carrying a cross is seeking God's glory, not boasting about how religiously pious we are, but it's carrying ourselves in a way that brings glory to God. What brings him glory also makes me flourish. What brings him glory also makes me flourish. Now, the problem is we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that my decision regarding my sexuality, 
as a single person, as a married person, what my eyes gaze on, what my mind thinks of, the way I, I deal with my body, that that actually glorifies God. We, we look at it as a very personal thing. We don't think that my responses to money, the way that I deal with money, what I do with it, how generous I am, how I'm not, the way that I respond to enemies, that, that all of that is an opportunity for God to be glorified. We generally tend not to look at it that way. We see the carrying of our cross as some kind of sacrificial membership fee that enables us to purchase eternal life. So if I do these hard things here, then I can punch my ticket and actually have eternal life. But Jesus tells us that, that the denying of self is actually a freeing state where the demeaning submissions to other lords and idols is conquered. I want to say that again. The denial of self is a freeing state where the demeaning submissions to other lords and idols are conquered. And they're conquered by choosing to submit to a Lord that is kind and gracious and powerful. Cycles of sin can be broken. Microphones can be fixed. Self-denial helps us to identify idols in our life. The, the ability to say no actually helps us realize what it is that we want to say yes to. It helps us identify idols that are good, but sorry, it, it helps us identify things that are good, but are becoming ultimate, which makes them idols. Self-denial trains us to say no to the temptations of the flesh. If, uh, if we are not training ourselves in self-denial, it's very difficult to actually say no. And it helps us to say no in light of something that is so much better because we're being trained by the Spirit. We're trying this whole thing of uh, counting our calories. And, uh, and one of the reasons that we count our calories, Karin reminds me, is that if I save up all my calories during the day, then I'm actually able to have dessert at night. Uh, because we, we, we're beyond the thing of like no gluten or no this or no that. We're like, let's just make this easy and set kind of a calorie limit for us and, and we're good. And so Corin's always like, no, I'm saving. I'm saying no to this and I'm saying no to that. And I'm saying no to that because I want creme brulee. You know? And, and, and the challenge in our lives is if we aren't trained by the cross, we're saying yes to this, yes to that, yes to the other thing. And what God is offering us, which is actually good and good for us, we're just full. And we don't want to have it. It is an active and constant pursuit. Taking up our cross is not a passive reception of a heavy burden. There isn't someone that's coming on you and saying, here, you're you have to carry this. Jesus is saying, if someone were to follow me, he is to take up his cross. Make that decision. But picking up our, our cross is not something that we do once. It is an act of continual submission to Jesus. It's not this once-off exam where you get to parrot off some theological truths about Jesus so that you can punch your ticket. No, it is a daily and consistent sense of dying to self knowing that Jesus said, I am with you. We are trained by this. 
trained by this. Carrying your cross, we are, are trained by this. I, we, we, we go on, on hikes on the, on the Fullerton Trail, and, um, and I wear a, a weight vest. And can you imagine if I wanted to be trained, if I just did one push-up, and I'm like, okay, I did a push-up. That's good now. I should be in great shape. Neil's giggling in that sense. I mean, he knows what it takes to train your body. And it takes consistent and active, constant engagement. And the thing about our cross is that it gets heavy, and we'll talk about that, and it gets difficult. But it isn't just this once-off thing that we do when we say yes to Jesus or when we go through a difficult time. What is not carrying our cross? It's not seeking suffering. Self-denial is not the same as self-harm. We are not lovers of pain. We are lovers of Jesus. And there is enough suffering in our world without us needing to go and look for more suffering so that somehow we can religiously prove our commitment to Jesus. This is important uh, because through the centuries, particularly in the first century, this was completely misunderstood. And there was a sense in which many people thought that the way in which we were to carry our cross and prove our love and affection to Jesus was to look for ways where we could undermine our bodies and, and physical pain and hurt and vows of, of poverty and all those kinds of things happened with a misunderstanding of basically saying, how can I prove to you um, that I'm carrying my cross? How can I prove to you that I love you? Let me help you. There is no way we can do that. The gift of grace and mercy we have received is so enormous that we would never be worthy of that. Uh, Travis's scripture helps us understand that, that God's affection rests on us so much and the sacrifice of Jesus is so complete that if we were to never do anything else, quote, for God, our standing as a son and daughter of the living God is unshakable. So we don't do that. We don't seek suffering. An Eeyore approach to carrying our cross. Oh, woe is me. There's so many things I can't do in this life. But I love Jesus. And one day when I die, I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away. Does that sound like it will flood a dark place with life? Does that have the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? Do people look at us and say, take me to your God? They look at us and say, man, you need a drink, you know? No, it's not the sense of like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I understand all my sin and the shame that Jesus rescued me from, and now for the rest of my life, I'm going to live burdened by that. no. The cross, the burden of the cross is not your sin and shame. It's not your guilt. It's not the pain that you received when others sinned on you. That burden has been paid for hundred times over by the blood of Jesus. This is not penance. Now, let me explain what penance is because I was sitting in a coffee shop in Sacramento and I was overhearing these two ladies talk and they were talking about Jesus. And the one lady said, do you know what penance is? And the other one said, yeah, those are the guys that rent your house. And I'm like, what? Oh, she, oh, no, no, not tenants, penance. Do you know what penance is? Penance is the sense that we have to now 
pay for our sins in the decisions that we make and the things that we say yes and no to. We pay penance so that we can make sure that our sins are paid for. Carrying your cross is not that. Uh, that is actually also Satan talking to us and saying, that is what you need to do. No, it is not. The burden of guilt, shame, and pain has been taken off us. So that is not carrying your cross. It's also not just an investment for eternity. It's not just the sense that we carry our cross. Jesus gives us hope for eternal life through his death. This glorious truth, it's true, but it isn't the only reason. Because without a current active experience of God's grace, we either won't carry his cross or we will legalistically carry our cross with white knuckles and gritted teeth, doing more harm than good to the message of grace. Jesus has promised us abundant life. Jesus said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life to the full or abundant life. So this is not just about making hard decisions here so that sometime in eternity we are rewarded. The psalmist says in verse uh, 13 of chapter 27, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Jesus promises us abundant life, but because our needs, our affections, and our goals are so shaped by the world rather than his word, we see the idea of carrying our cross as a heavy, unloving, and abusive burden. There is a quality of life that we are experiencing or can experience when we carry our crosses. A quality of life where generosity becomes more important to us than hoarding. A quality of life where we understand the value of our body and the value of the body of another person and we treat ourselves with dignity and the same dignity to that image bearer of Christ and we will not defile them by the way in which we think, gaze, or treat them. There is a quality of life where you can literally say, it is better for me to choose this than to choose that. When we consider others rather than satisfying or getting your own way. You know the whole thing that we're saying Christmas, it's better to give than to receive? That is something that you grow in in maturity. How many children do you know that actually at the age of four, five, and six come to you and say, Mom, Dad, you know, this Christmas, it's better to give than receive. So take all the money that you were going to budget for me for Christmas gifts and give that to someone else. No, they need to be trained in generosity. And, and ultimately, when they grow up and they make those decisions, there is a sense not just of spiritual pride, but of saying it is better to give than to receive. Peter makes sure later on that he reminds Jesus of this truth that carrying our cross and making sacrifices in this world is not just chips for the eternal life. Where Jesus says to, um, to the crowd that's listening and the disciples, unless you leave your mother and father, unless you love me more than them, you cannot participate in the kingdom of God. And Peter's like, so, um, so Jesus, you know, we have... Just so you know, we've, we've done that. You know, I've left my mother's and father's house. I've left my fishing business. And he, and he says, yes, I, I know. And you will receive a reward in this life 
and in the life to come. And so there is a sense in which carrying our cross gives us rewards now. I, I think of my family. I think of the fact that we left um, South Africa. We left my mom and dad. My, my mom passed away a year after we left. Uh, grandparents, we left our grandparents there. Um, we have received extra grandparents, Priscilla. We have received brothers and sisters. We have received more than we could ever have lacked. We've seen people be free from cycles of sin. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen healings. We've seen restoration. We've seen relationships that we never thought, never thought that this could be restored, flourishing now because of the grace of God. We've seen men and women that have forgiven each other of adultery, whose marriages are flourishing. We've seen children that have gone walkabout come back. It's better to live in this way. So much better. This is not something we do alone. The challenge is that unless we carry our cross with Jesus, this is simply another religious work. It makes us more bitter and unpleasant to be around. A yoke, something that you put on oxen so that they drag a plow, is actually very similar to a cross. And Jesus says to his disciples earlier on, he's, he's trying to get them to get something. He's drip feeding. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the part that a lot of us miss. Of course, we want rest. Of course, a lot of us feel weary and burdened. But what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble and, I will, and in me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The opposite of Peter's triumphalism of like, this is our moment. This is where we get to show the Romans who we are is not just giving up. The opposite of it is a humble, focused authority. And that's what Jesus exhibits here. He never says, never in any of Jesus' teachings, come to me and your life will be awesome. He always says, there will be difficulties. There will be trials. In fact, he says, in order to follow me, you have to understand that as a truth and a reality. But the way in which that is made easier is that I am with you in this. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. This is the same Jesus that turns around to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. I'm lowly and humble in heart, but I know that there is a battle for your soul. And I'm willing to rebuke you because you are in danger. We don't carry our cross alone. We carry it with Jesus. We also carry it with each other. St. Teresa of Avila, she says this, we, when we are overcome by sadness, fear, or suffering, when the pains of loss overwhelm us, when evil seems to have taken power, let us look to the cross and be filled with peace, knowing that Christ has walked this road and walks it now with us and with all our brothers and sisters. There is this beauty 
of each one of us carrying our own cross and yet at the same time receiving help from Jesus and giving help to one another in the context of the crosses that we bear. Now, this gets difficult when we start to compare crosses. So imagine you're carrying this cross and you're walking up this hill and then you look at Travis's cross and you're like, that cross looks really smooth. Mine's full of splinters. That cross looks about half the size of my cross. That thing is even made of paper. Look at him. He looks great just charging up the hill and here I am. And so, yes, God, I know we all have to carry the cross, but mine is way heavier than his. Does that help you carry your cross? Does that help you become more bitter and twisted? Does that help you access the grace of God in all of this? No, it doesn't. What we can do, though, is we can come alongside a brother and sister. And this is what Paul says in Galatians. Each one, sorry, says, bear one another's burdens, but each one is to carry his own load. And so what Paul is saying is there is a cross that each one of us is designed to carry. But then there is also the help of the community of God that comes alongside and says, come on, you can do this. It's important for you to be able to make these decisions. I'm with you. I'm right here. When Karin and I were hiking, when we were first dating, which was now, good grief, 27 years ago. Some of you are not even that old. We, we went on this really long hike, and Karin had, we had done the hike backwards. So the, the short part of it we did for the full day, and the long part of it was half a day. And so our transport was going to leave. And so we had to do 70% of the hike in 30% of the time. So we were charging. And Karen was incredibly, incredibly tired. And she was carrying her backpack. And I had my backpack on. And I said to her, just hold onto the bottom of my backpack. Don't look up. Just hold. Just look at my backpack and we'll do this. I didn't take her backpack. Truth is, I couldn't take her backpack. <laughs> but I did what I could. And I said, don't look up. Let's just go. Just hold your hand. Put your hand here. And I can help you. And there's a sense in which all of us can do that for someone else. We can say, look, I, I can't take that burden for you. That, that burden of sexual temptation, I can't take that for you. But together, we can walk this. I can't take that off your shoulders. That's something you need to do. You, you're a parent. I'm not a parent. But I can help you. Vice versa. There are things that we can do. The, the sad thing is, is that Karen did look up. <laughs> Yeah, she's not very good at listening. She did look up. She saw these like three little hills. <laughs> and she, she sat down on the side there. She says, I'm not moving. I don't care if I have to stay here for three days. I'm not moving. And it wasn't a rebuke that got her up. Believe it or not, I can be kind and gentle. I was saying, babe, I know this is hard. But if you just hold on, just look at the back of the backpack. Just look at that. We'll make it up that hill. And if we can do that for one another and say, just hold on. Just set your eyes on Jesus. Hold on. We'll make it up this hill. 
The cross frees us. Jeremy, you can come up. There's a mysterious freedom in losing our life to find out who we really are. The cross frees me from my need to be a celebrity pastor on a pedestal because I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus. The cross frees me from the anxiety of whether I matter because the Son of God made himself nothing so that I can have unfettered access into the throne of grace. I matter. The cross frees me from the bondage to riches and comfort because the Jesus that I serve has made me a co-heir of the new heaven and the new earth. The cross frees me from entitlement because I realize that everything I have is an undeserved gift of grace. The cross frees me from needing to be part of the in crowd because I'm a citizen of heaven, part of the household of God. The cross frees me from the cross frees me and enables me to welcome advice and challenge because Jesus has silenced the accuser. The cross frees me to serve without recognition because Jesus whispers my name in heaven when he prays for me. The cross frees me to apologize quickly and to repent because my debt has been paid in full. The cross frees me from the desire to be king and live an autonomous life because the king of kings modeled a life of submission. The cross frees me from being a beggar, always looking for an angle or something that may threaten me because I'm a child of God under his protection, provision, and love. Jesus, I want to thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And that joy is your church. You knew what was being fashioned in that moment. In that moment of physical exhaustion and pain and spiritual separation from the Father, you knew that we would be welcomed in as full sons and daughters of the living God because of that sacrifice. Jesus, we want to be a people of the way of the cross. We know there is no other way, but we ask for your help, Spirit. I want to thank you that you promise that you are with us. I want to thank you that you promise that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I want to thank you that you promise that we would not be alone in this. And I want to thank you that there is no burden that we can bear that is too big for you and me to carry together. I want to thank you that you obliterated the burden of sin and shame. And God, I want to pray that you would make us a group of people that proudly bear our cross, not out of penance, but out of deep devotion and love. I pray this for your glory, God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.